As I've been working on this text from Micah, um, I was thinking about it, and sometimes I surprise people when I go to visit them, and they don't know what I do yet, or they have, you know, I haven't had a chance to tell them I'm a pastor. And it's funny, I'll go and I'll talk with them, I'll meet with them, and I'll say, they'll say, oh, so what do you do, or why are you here? <laughs> I actually had that experience this week, and I said, well, I'm a pastor, I'm the pastor in Balfour. You should see the look on sometimes on people's face, the surprise. <laughs> you know, if the, the younger people, they look at me, and it's almost like if I could read their thoughts, it'd be something like, but you seem so normal. <laughs> or, or older people, they'd say, but you're so young. <laughs> Where's your gray hair? <laughs> or your, or your, uh, your glasses or something. You see, sometimes people have these mental ideas of, of what I'm supposed to be or what a pastor is supposed to look like. They have this assumption that, Pastors are supposed to be elderly men with white hair. Um, I can tell you gratefully that there are pastors who are men and women who have all sorts of different colors of hair. <laughs> and I'm grateful for that. But it makes me think that I'm, I'm not alone in this. As we hear the words of Micah, we begin to think that, you know, Jesus didn't fit the people's idea of Messiah. They had grand ideas of what Messiah would be. And we realize that he fit God's definition of Messiah, but not necessarily the people's. So Jesus didn't fit. He surprised people. He scandalized people. They expected the Messiah to come with, with fanfare, like a great king entering a city, or like a military general with a procession of armies in front of him. Instead, he came as a child, a small child. God crammed himself into the form of a child became a child in the middle of the night in a tiny little town. God's ways are not our ways. And we reminded this again, as Micah tells us. Now, what's interesting is that Micah spoke these words hundreds of years, centuries before Jesus came. These words are prophetic. Micah spoke these words, and then God fulfilled them generations later. But Micah reminds us that, that Jesus would come, or that this ruler would come from the town of Bethlehem. Now, this helps us in a few things. One, it reminds us that this was meant to be, that Bethlehem was no accident, that God came and sent his son to Bethlehem on purpose. But we're also reminded that maybe some of you remember that Bethlehem is the city of David. David, one of the great kings, maybe one of the, the greatest king of Israel. He came from Bethlehem as well. And this, is a sign to, this was a sign to us and to, those, and to the people of the time that this king came from the line of David, that he was going to be um, filling part of God's promise to David, that he would always have a ruler on his throne. So there's this interesting part of Bethlehem, there's this good about it. But also, it's interesting because Bethlehem, it's no Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a city just a few miles away. I don't even know, maybe just even like around a mile away. It's close. But Jerusalem was a city you expect a king to show up. Jerusalem was the political center. It was a place where Rome had their person. It was a place where Israel had their high priest. It was where the temple was at. This is where all the power and the politics went on. This is where kings show up. In fact, if you remember the three wise men, the three men from the east, the Magi, they went to Jerusalem first. They went to Herod, the, the current king, and said, where is this new king? And he had no idea what they were talking about. Instead, they went to Bethlehem. See, God is confounding the wise. God is undermining the assumptions of the strong. We hear the words in Micah as he says, But you, Bethlehem, 
out of you, the smallest of the towns of Judah, out of you will come a ruler from me. And we're reminded that God works in surprising ways. But if you think where God showed up first is surprising, wait till you hear his family tree. Micah talks about his family of old or of these ancient origins. If you read Matthew's uh, family tree of Jesus, he gives this, this lineage that led to Christ. It's pretty surprising. Now, it starts off okay. It begins with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which, you know, if you remember their stories, those guys had some struggles. They weren't perfect. <laughs> they did a lot of things wrong. But still, for the people of God, these guys were patriarchs. They were heroes of the faith. And then you get to Judah. Judah, and who and it mentions that Jesus was born of Judah and Tamar, which, oh, that's interesting. Uh, Tamar's an interesting, funny name for a woman. But actually, Tamar was his daughter-in-law. And Judah refused to give her her birth, or refused to carry out his obligation to her by having her, after one of his sons died, um, to replace him with another son. It was a tradition of that culture. And so basically, he was neglecting her. So it wasn't until she posed as a prostitute and then Judah came and slept with her that they had two more children. It's from that group or from that, from that line comes Jesus. And then you go a few more generations and it's Salmon or Shalman and Rahab. Rahab, many of you know, was a prostitute who lived in Jericho. But she was faithful to God and his people and helped uh, and conceal the spies and, and to help them. So we have, beginning in the story of Jesus and his line, there's two prostitutes already. <laughs> but they had a son, Boaz. And Boaz was this faithful man, this kinsman redeemer. It was, a, it was a cultural thing that they did in their time where family would take care of family. And so he married Ruth, took her to be his wife. Well, Ruth was a Moabite. It means she was a foreigner. She wasn't from Israel. And at that time, that was, that was not something you did. That was not really a good thing. And so Jesus has a Moabite woman as part of his family, part of his lineage. And then you come to David, the great king that I mentioned just a bit ago. And it was David who had an affair with another man's wife, Bathsheba. They had a child. And then eventually, David killed Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, a faithful man who was one of his soldiers. He had him go out in front of everyone and he died. So you have this checkered, which is a nice way of saying really messy. You have this checkered background of Jesus. And yet God works redemptively in this. The ways that scandalize people, the ways, the things that scandalize us, God is still at work. God is still doing amazing things, working redemptively, despite the things that we do. Despite the, the things, the ways that we mess things up. And as I was reading this passage, thinking about the lineage of Jesus, I was reminded of Corinthians and Paul's words to the church in Corinth. We told him that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the things of low and disrepute. Things that everybody thought were nothing. He chose those things to reorient our idea of what's important to turn our idea of what's important, to turn it on its head, so that none of us would boast. None of us could say that I earned my place with God. So that none of us have even the, the, uh, the temptation to say that what I've done has earned my right to be in, uh, with Christ. 
But God has done this through Jesus. In Jesus, we have this, this redemption. Paul reminds us that Jesus, he is our wisdom. He is our redemption. He is our holiness and our righteousness. That he is the one that we boast in. Christ is the one that we, we tell people about. Not all the things that we've done to try and earn God's favor. No, we tell people about Christ when they ask us. So Jesus came and he did these surprising things. He came in a, to a surprising place and he came from surprising origins to remind us that our boast is not in ourselves but in God. So not only did Jesus come in a surprising way, but he revealed the kingdom of God in unexpected ways. See, he thwarted the ideas of the revolutionaries, those who thought that the Messiah was going to come and bring about military upheaval and revolution. He didn't fit their idea. Or about the religious leaders, who assumed the Messiah was going to come and usher in this, this new age. Well, in one sense he did, but not like they expected. Micah tells us that he would rule, that he would stand and shepherd in the strength of God. Now, it's interesting, this idea of shepherd, this image, what an interesting place, what an interesting metaphor for this king, his shepherd. You see, in Christ's day, when Jesus walked the ground of Israel, shepherds weren't so, they weren't such a great idea. They were often outcasts. They were low in society. They smelled funny. They looked funnier. They were on the outsides. They'd spend all day out with their sheep in the evening watching their flocks. They didn't fit in society. And yet, surprisingly, in God's way, it's the angels who came and notified the shepherds first, going to even the lowest of people to remind them this God is for everyone. This Savior who has come is for all people. See, God's ways are not our ways. God does things that are surprising. But the other thing, too, is that surprising is that shepherds have redeeming qualities. Shepherds are faithful. They care for sheep. I mean, it's easy to care for a person, but a sheep, an animal, like that's, that takes a certain level of care. And they knew their sheep. And their sheep knew them. They could call and they would, the sheep would recognize their name because they spent so much time with them. Jesus talks about good shepherds who would give up their lives for their sheep to protect them. Protect them from wild animals that would tear them apart. Jesus talks about uh, shepherds, good shepherds, leaving 99 to go and find the one. Shepherds cared for their sheep. It's no surprise then that Jesus talks about himself as a good shepherd. A shepherd who cares, who takes care of sheep. As I think about shepherd and how it fits with king and leader, and I think probably the closest thing that we have in our time is this idea of servant leader. A shepherd is like a servant leader. I've been spending a lot of time reflecting on leadership. And a lot of things that I've come across, the best things talk about leadership, not so much in terms of technique and tools and tactics you use, not that. Not really much about personality, you know, like having a great personality. That's not really what they talk about. The best things talk about character. Having the character of a leader, of a servant leader. Having godly character, to be more specific. But character comes the old-fashioned way. There are no shortcuts to character. 
character comes the same way it always has. Over the long road of consistently choosing the right things. Especially when they hurt. Especially when they are difficult. Character is built the same way it's always been built. Continually choosing the right. So I have this conviction that great character forms great men and women to be great leaders. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, leadership, who I can check out. I'm not a leader. That's other people. And I want to challenge you. I challenge each of you. That in ways that maybe you take for granted, you are leaders. Many of you are leaders in the place where you work. People look to you for direction. Many of you are leaders in this church. People rely on you. They ask for your advice. They ask for your counsel. They look to you to help lead things that we do as a church. Many more of you are leaders in your family. Leaders with your, with your spouse. Leaders with your children and their children. See, the thing is, you are all leaders. My challenge is, what kind of leader are you? What kind of leader are you? Are you a leader who has character? Are you trying to lead from techniques and personality? People see through that. Leading with character will last you the long haul. But the hard, character part is the hard part. How do we get character like this? The, the way that I know, the only way that I know, is through faith, through relationship with Christ. That's the only way that it's worked in my life. I've tried other things. Or I tried to rely on my discipline, on my good values. But eventually, my, my discipline wears out. But since I've drawn closer to Christ, that my character has begun to change. And no longer is it something that I feel like I have to try to do. It's something like Nick was saying, it's something that comes out of me. So Jesus talks about, or Micah talks about Jesus as this servant leader. This shepherd who would stand in the strength of God. So we see that this strength of God begins to play out in Jesus' life. You know, so I talk about, you know, if we want character, we have to draw closer to Christ. Well, we notice what character looks like when we look at his life. What does a servant leader look like? What does strength of God look like? Well, I can tell you it's surprising. It's maybe not what we think. Strength of God looks like a servant. Like God who would leave his throne, who would leave heaven and come and enter into human history. Live among us, despite our brokenness and the things and the pain that we suffer. Who would come and live among us. He'd be God with us. And then he would walk the ground, dirty, dusty roads of Galilee, healing people. Throngs of people would crowd in around him and he would heal people. He would forgive people, people whose lives, they, they, the shame for them was overwhelming, and yet he would still speak grace to them. Your sins have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. We see this character of Christ in, as a servant. But also we see this character of, of God, the strength of God in terms of sacrifice as well. This idea of giving up, setting down our comfort, 
setting down our selfishness for the sake of others. To delight in the growth of someone else more than your own. As leaders, that's part of character, is sacrifice. Pouring into other people. Pouring into them to see them grow. To see them come more fully alive in Christ. These are the things that we begin to see. This is just scratching the surface of what it means to follow Christ. What servant leadership or strength of God looks like. Jesus did some amazing things. But he also surprised people by the ways that he brought the kingdom. The ways that he introduced the kingdom of God as a shepherd, as a servant leader, as one who worked in this paradoxical strength of God. But I have good news for you, too. I have good news for you because not only has he come, he's coming again. And I know some people are a little confused. I mean, hopefully none of you, but people, talk with people in our community, people are confused that he was supposed to come two days ago, <laughs> according to the Mayan calendar. <laughs> but the truth is, he is coming. He's coming. Coming to set things right. See, this world is broken. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to, and he is coming to make things right and good. Talks about Jesus, or Micah talks about him as being this one who would, who would come and that we would live securely in him. That the people would have security in God. Now I think he's probably talking, he's probably talking about security in the sense of no more fear. No longer afraid of harm or violence. But I also couldn't help but think of this security and this identity that we have as children of God. That in those days no longer will we question, am I good enough, God? No longer will we question, God, do you love me? Am I your child? See, in those days, we will be secure in our identity as children of God. Understanding that he loves us like crazy. Finally accepting it. Finally realizing there's nothing we have to do to earn it. There's nothing we could ever do to earn it. And yet we receive it. Micah says that you will live in security, but also that, that he will be great among all the ends of the earth. That he would be great. Talks about this idea of things being finally made right. I was thinking of Isaiah where it says, Behold, I'm making new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they even come to mind. But rejoice and be glad in what I will create. I will create Jerusalem, to be a delight and its people to be a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem. I will delight in my people. The sounds of weeping and crying will be heard no more. Never again in it will a child, an infant, not live more than a few days. Nor a man, an elderly man, see the end, not see the end of his years. The wolf and the sheep will feed together. A lion will eat straw like an ox. The world will be made right. It will be turned on its head and made right. But Micah says that he will be great to the ends of the earth and he will be your peace. It's the last line of the passage we had this morning. He will be your peace. Now we think of terms, we think, probably most of you are thinking the English term of peace, which means the absence of violence. But when he said peace, he said it in the Hebrew sense of shalom. 
which is not only the absence of strife, of anguish, of violence, and war, but it's also the presence of God's prosperity. The presence of amazing things, of joy, of celebration. Again, I was thinking of Isaiah, where Isaiah said in the first few chapters of, of his book that it talks about that in those days the people will, will beat their swords into plowshares. They'll beat their spears into pruning hooks. No more will nation rise up against nation. They won't even train for war anymore. Violence will be over. Wars will be over. Aggression between nations will be done. Struggles between spouses will be over between children. Violence will be done. But not only that, not only will there be an absence of violence, there will be this presence of joy, this presence of celebration. Isaiah talks about God, that on this mountain, he will prepare a feast, a feast of the richest foods that will be for all the peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats, and the finest of wines, that on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds the people, the heat that covers the nations. On this mountain, he, the sovereign Lord, the Lord Almighty, the God who created everything, will wipe away the tears from every face and he will remove the disgrace of his people from the ends of the earth. See, it's hard to even get at what will happen when Christ returns. It's hard to explain it in words. I, don't, I think that's why Isaiah talks about a feast. That's something that his people understood as a celebration. All we can do is use words and gesture at it. But he's coming. The good news is he's coming to make things right and good. I love this season of Advent. I love these weeks leading up to Christmas because they remind us of our hope. These weeks stir hope in us. Despite the things that we've seen this year, despite the difficult things we've seen, maybe even experienced in our lives, Despite these things, we have the promise that Christ is coming. He's coming to make things right and good. This season of Advent stirs hope in us. I pray that this, as, this, as your hope is stirred, as, as you begin to, to feel this fire in you, that you draw closer to Christ. That you spend more time with Jesus. Spend more time reading his word. Pouring over the scriptures and what he's written to us. Spend more time in prayer, listening. Just being with God. Having his Holy Spirit fill you again, time and time again. I pray that you hear this message of hope. I pray that you hear this this reality that Christ has come and he is coming again and it stirs a fire in your heart. It fans this flame in your heart to see God's kingdom come here. To be a part of his kingdom here on earth. To see his kingdom growing here in our community. To see people living better to see people who are struggling with being alone or addicted, who their, their marriages are, are falling apart, to see their lives changed. I pray also that you feel this fire in your bones, this fire in your bones to see our community look more like God's kingdom, to see lives transformed. I pray this season stirs you. We've only got a few days left of Advent and then it will be Christmas and the celebration begins. Use this time well. Live up this season. Let the gap between the way things are and the way they're supposed to be stir your hope. Amen.